This week, Josh Hawley introduces the Love America Act in the Senate. The January 6th Commission began its select hearings Tuesday, and the CDC is saying masks are back, what this means for the future of the coronavirus pandemic. My name's Noah Huey, and this is Under the Stars. Welcome back to another week, everyone. Uh, I've been off for, I basically almost might as well have been off the entire month of July. Um, but that's fine because um, we're here right now. So before we begin, I'd like to let you know the follow my Instagram. That's at Huey Noah. That's at H-U-G-H-E-Y-N-O-A-H. That's at Huey Noah. And also to make sure to support my show through merch and my books in the shop section of my website, um, I've got three mo- three books, a large selection of merchandise you can pick from. I've actually just ordered um, the jump. No, what are they called? Not jumper pants, but the I call I want to say sweatpants because that's what I call them. Um, at least that's what they remind me of. And one of the this is why people hate you shirts, which is uh, kind of a favorite of mine in terms of the designs I've got. All two of them <laughs> in there. So uh, just recently, Josh Hawley introduced the. Love America Act into uh, the Senate, which is an anti-critical race theory bill. Um, I don't think I've ever talked about critical race theory in on the show before, just because I never felt like any of the news related to the topic of critical race theory was ever really um, big enough for me to address on the show, I guess, because there's, there's a certain selection of things that I simply refuse to talk about on the show. Um, by and large, I try and keep the topics that I'm talking about actual governmental affairs that uh, have, I guess, some semblance of... Uh, basically, I rate it based on how much I think it actually matters. So I don't often talk about talk about um, societal issues and stuff like that um, or anything that relates to the uh, culture wars because I don't think the culture wars matter. Um, fr- frankly, I think they're a massive distraction from the things that do matter. Um, but this is an interesting piece of legislation that I thought I could mention. And then I can kind of, I can try and take some time to go into some of my thoughts related to critical race theory by and large, which I, uh, have never really done before. So, um, Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican from Montana on Monday, introduced the Love America Act, a measure to promote patriotism in public schools and ban federal funding from going to schools and teaching that the nation's fund foundational, that excuse me, uh, banning federal funding from going to schools teaching about that the nation's foundational texts are rooted in racism. The legislation would require students to be able to recite the Pledge of Allegiance by first grade, the preamble of the Constitution by fourth grade, and the preamble of the Declaration of Independence by eighth grade. Tenth grade students would be expected to identify the Bill of Rights. The bill would also prohibit federal funds from going to schools that teach 
that the aforementioned texts are the results of white supremacy or racism. Holly told Fox News on Monday that the proposal is a response to recent push to teach critical race theory in schools. Holly called CRT poisonous in that it is a lie to teach students about America is systematically racist. The only way to replace those lies is to teach kids the truth, and that's what the Love America Act is about, Holly said. Over the past years, Americans have been watched stunned as radical ideology spread through our country's elite institutions, one that teaches America as an irredeemably racist nation founded by white supremacists, Holly said in a statement announcing the Love America Act. Now it has found its way into our children's schools. We cannot afford for our children to lose face and the noble ideals this country was founded on. We have to make sure that our children understand what makes this country great, the ideas, the ideals of hope and promise our founding fathers fought for, and the love of country that unites us all, he added. The move comes after the president of the second largest teachers union in America denied that critical race theory is taught in K-12 schools during remarks earlier this month in which she vowed to fight culture warriors who attempt to censor what she describes as a realistic tel- telling of the country's history. Um, I, I think that's... Uh, Well, I'll read this next part. Randy Weingarten, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, said during a conference that the union is preparing litigation and is ready to go. Quote, let's be clear. Critical race theory is not taught in elementary schools or high schools. It's a method of examination taught in law school and college that helps analyze whether systemic racism exists, Weingarten said, according to a copy of the remarks posted to the union's website. And uh, I think we'll stop there because that's enough. I don't, I'm not interested in all that information. So, first of all, to address the question at hand, we have to talk about the topic of critical race theory, CRT, that conservatives fear very highly. And the question becomes, do, is it rightful that they fear critical race theory so much? Well, the, the issue that at the very beginning of this, of this debate, I suppose, the issue becomes nobody seems to have a very set definition of critical race theory. Depending on who you ask, it seems very clearly to me that the definition of critical race theory changes very heavily every to ev- from every person to person you go. And the people that are out there trying to figure out what the definition of critical race theory is objectively often get shot down by both sides of the aisle because... I think a little bit of political idealism is probably playing a part in the debate, whereas some people want critical race theory to be an evil, demonic thing, and some people want critical race theory to be a harmless theory that should be taught uh, in some schools. Now, critical race theory, from what I've looked up, because I, I once spent a night just looking it up and seeing some of its foundations to try and get an understanding of it. And then I also uh, kind of explored around some advocates for critical race theory, some of which are teachers in public education systems in Atlanta, uh, etc. And what I found is that, at least based on how it, what it was formed as, critical race theory was a roughly 1960s, 1970s political theory in a sense, not necessarily political theory, but a legal theory more so, I guess, that posits the question excuse me, that posits the question on whether or not America's legal systems are, have a, a sense of inherent racism in them. Meaning, essentially, that the very foundation of the institution by which you're, you're being critical of, you're examining, 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 um, happens to have a sense of racism that, that uh, allows life to be easier for white people and harder for black and brown people, uh, by and large. Now, here's the thing. If that if that's if that was the crux of the whole conversation, I I feel like I may extend because this I'm in a new chair. If you can see, I don't know if anyone's ever seen my old chair, so I'm gonna kind of pull this towards me a little bit. I, I just pushed it forward me and then right back. Anyway, 
that's a tangent. Um, so if all if the crux of this whole argument is criticizing and examining the federal institutions or institutions in general in the United States and uh, discerning whether or not the the foundation of the system itself is designed to harm uh, minorities in the United States, then there I see no issue with the with the question at all. However, there's lots of advocates. No, there's not lots of advocates. There's lots of critics of critical race theories and critical race theory and a few and a few advocates who I could who I could think of. I can't think of any names, but I can see what they look like who where critical race theory has a little bit of a different tune to it. Um, the I feel like in general, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like the general understanding of critical race theory on the conservative side is that it's essentially a theory that teaches people to uh, assume that your race in any sense determines a level of, um, of I guess, responsibility for a sense of racism. Uh, a term that's thrown around quite frequently by critical race theory advocates is white fragility and, and, and stuff like that. That crowd of people where... There, there, and I, there's no doubt a group of people that do believe in these things on, on the pro-critical race theory side, but I feel like um, the understanding among some advocates and very many critics of critical race theory is that it's a theory that promotes, and the concept here is that it promotes this to children in public education, uh, promotes this idea that your race basically determines your, who you are, and it always will, and it always has, and there's nothing you can do about it except destroy the system. And first of all, before we even, I, I, there's a couple different layers to that. You first have to think, do, one, is this what critical race theory is? Is this what people want? Um, and on some levels, yes, but also on other levels, no. I've seen very many advocates for critical race theory say this is the exact opposite of what we're trying to fight for. So then I get very confused. And what I've learned is that in politics, if you're not confused, then you're probably kidding yourself. Um, so as long as I'm confused, I'm assuming that means I'm getting as all the most accurate information from the very many people who claim to be critical race theory advocates. Um but then, I've lost my train of thought when I unplugged my computer. What, uh, what was I saying again? Oh, yeah. Um, so the question becomes, is this what people are fighting for? And since that is a little confusing, I feel like that could... I think it's enough, fair enough to say that, at least on some level, that is a, a, a posited part of critical race theory, at least as taught in, uh, in some institutions. And then the question becomes, if that's the case... At what level is it taught, I guess? Because, again, this whole issue is about public schooling K through 12. The Like, from what I originally learned about critical race theory is that it started as, like, a, a legal thing that you would learn in college, that you would probably in, uh, witness critical race theory as, as, uh, as a subject in schooling when you got to college if you studied law, because you would be discussing legal institutions by which perhaps racism still lingers in the very foundation of those institutions, and then you, you would move on from there. But the idea now is that critical race theory is being taught in K-12 through public education. And so the question becomes, what exactly of C parts of CRT are being taught? And I feel like that's, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like that's a part that very many people on the pro-CRT side often overlook. Because there are very many instances in which I, where people actually either go into the classroom or um, take 
not take notes, I guess record, have record of in a classroom what some teachers are saying. And while, of course, they're probably going, <coughs> excuse me, while, of course, I, again, this is where, the, where I feel political ideology kind of plays a part, political idealism, excuse me, plays a part into it, where, where people are going to look for like blatantly, like they're going to look for someone to say that your race determines everything. They're not going to look for someone who says critical race theory is we're trying to hold these institutions accountable. And another issue is, at least for me, with the concept of critical race theory is the concept that um, the only way by which to fix it is to just completely de dis unseat these institutions, which is often, I feel, the solution that is off, that is provided by pro-critical race theory advocates, unless I'm seeing all the wrong people, which is entirely plausible. The internet's a massive place, and with as much connection as we have now, it also makes it incredibly hard to find, um, the, I guess, the people you're looking for. Now, all of this aside, if we move to the Love America Act, which I do have, and I did read thir Wednesday or Thursday... Um, it's like a lot of people, because what a lot of people look at when they see what a lot of liberals, I should say, look at when they see anti-critical race theory bills is basically Jim Crow. Now, the thing is, uh, this opinion is highly, highly, uh, in, or not, uh, what's the word? This opinion is highly influenced by their politics. At the end of the day, liberals and conservatives don't really understand each other all that much, and they're both fighting a highly dramatized version of one another. Um, but what liberals often see with critical race theory bills prom promoted in the Senate and the House and across state, uh, state governments is often almost a reinstation of Jim Crow. And what I feel like... I'm not, I've not read any reactions to this, to this bill because I skipped over all of them and just read it myself. But what I feel a lot of people will likely say is that this is probably just an attack on, on black and brown people and yada, 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 and, and all this, all these things. But at the end of the day, I actually think this bill being promoted is otherwise not all bad. The part about it that I would debate is the parts that teach well, actually, it doesn't. It doesn't actually directly mention CRT. Now that I'm remembering it, where is it? Um, policy, educational agency, federal funds. So, in section five, restrictions on federal funds to educational agencies and schools. Uh, Part A says, notwithstanding any other provision of law, federal funds shall only be provided to educational agency or school in which students are the first. Yeah, that's the Pledge of Allegiance stuff. That's not what I'm looking for, actually. Here we go. Part B. Restriction of federal funds for teaching that certain documents are products of white supremacy or racism. Notwithstanding any other provision or law, no federal funds shall be provided to an educational agency or school that teaches the Pledge of Allegiance, the Declaration of Independence, or the Constitution of the United States is a product of white supremacy or racism. So, in effect, unlike very many of these bills, it doesn't target the theory of critical race theory all that directly. It does indirectly target it by saying that schools will no longer receive federal funding so long as they teach that those founding documents are rooted in racism, which if you want to talk about the philosophical question on whether or not the Declaration of Independence and so on and so forth are rooted in racism, I suppose we could. But for time's sake, I'm not going to get into that part of the debate, though I'd love to any other time. Um, overall, 
with that part being the part that I would say maybe we should talk about this and kind of get a clearer understanding of where we're going, it's really not that bad because all it does is it promotes that students know the documents of their, the, of their, that founded their country uh, and really have an adept understanding of them, which is something that I think is highly important if you're going to get involved in a civic in a position of civic duty or if you're just going to be involved in in the political arena whatsoever is to have an adept understanding and to actually just know what those things say which if we look at the statistics not very many people do so overall i think that there's some things that need to be worked out uh, in terms of this love america act i think the name is highly misleading because i saw the name and i freaked out because i was like oh this is another version of the 1776 commission which was donald trump's way of essentially saying we have to glorify america i thought it was the same thing in that way this one doesn't even say you have to say that it was fundamentally good it says you have to know what the these documents say and restrict federal funding that says they're fundamentally rooted in white supremacy or racism, which again is the part you could talk about. And on the side of critical race theory in general, it's a theory that I'm willing to listen to and I think has some, has some bits in it that are very important, especially in terms of holding up the institutions uh, of our nation accountable for the, for the things they do and say and how they affect people of different races. But I think by and large, um, there needs to be more... Uh, candid discussion involving critical race theory because I think you'll find that very often is the discussion, as it usually is, is, is diluted by political idealism on both sides of the aisle. I'm going to take a drink of water real quick. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so, Tuesday, the January 6th Commission began its select hearings... <laughs> The January 6th Commission began its select hearings, and it did it by taking a listen to some Capitol Police officers and D.C. police officers who responded and were and just had to experience the Capitol riot on January 6th. Um, I'm going to read from this, and this is from, I believe, CBS? Yeah, CBS. Um, so the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol riot held its first hearing on Tuesday with emotional testimony from four law enforcement officers who defended the building that day. The officers spoke at times angrily about the physical and psychological injuries they sustained and gave a rare first-hand look at the types of attacks that they and their fellow officers suffered. The officers among the few who have held who have told their stories to the press and Tuesday marked the first time they appeared together to give a, the official testimony. Representative Benny Thompson, the committee's chairman, played footage of the attack at the start of the hearing, noting that while it may not be easy for officers to revisit the events of that day, quote, history will remember your names and your actions, end quote. Two of the officers were visibly upset. Capitol Police Sergeant, I'm going to butcher his name, Aquilino Ganell reached for a tissue and wiped tears from his face while another D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone counseled him. Ganell said he was beaten with a flagpole and soaked with a chemical spray while defending the Capitol. As a result of his injuries, he said he had surgery on his right foot, would need surgery on his left shoulder, and will need further rehab for possibly more than a year. Fanon told CBS News he was tortured on January 6th, dragged alone into the crowd, tased, and beaten with fists and metal objects. He said Tuesday the attack rendered him unconscious and that he suffered a mild heart attack and a brain injury. 
He continues to deal with trauma, and so do his children, after nearly losing their father, he said. Fanon said he feared for his life and pleaded with the mob, telling them, I have kids. He said he heard the crowd chant, kill him with his own gun, and said, I can still hear those words in my head today. During his testimony, Fanon criticized people who have downplayed the attacks. Quote, What makes the struggle harder and more painful is to know so many of my fellow citizens, including so many of the people I put my life at risk to defend, are downplaying or outright denying what happened. I feel like I went to hell and back to protect them and the people in this room, but too many are now telling me that hell doesn't exist or that hell actually wasn't that bad. End quote. He slammed his fist on the desk and shouted, quote unquote, The indifference shown to my college colleagues is disgraceful. Fanon later said he believed some members of the government were responsible for inciting the behavior at the Capitol and have continued to propagate those statements. He said things like this was 1776 or that police officers who fought risked their lives and some who gave there were redcoats and traitors. Fanon said to me, those individuals are representative of the worst that America has to offer. Capitol Police Officer Private First Class Harry Dunn, who also testified Tuesday, said he was assaulted and called racial slurs during the mob attack, which occurred after President Donald Trump's Stop the Steal rally. Dunn said that during the siege, while in conversation with a rioter, he volunteered that he'd voted for Joe Biden. A crowd of about 20 people then surrounded it, he said, screaming and calling him the N-word. After an attack, he sat down with another black officer and told him about the racial slurs he endured that day. Um, oh, here's, a, here's the part I, I, that I was interested from Officer Dunn. Quote, if a hitman is hired and he kills somebody, the hitman goes to jail. But not only does the hitman go to jail, but the person who hired him does. There was an attack on the car- that carried out on January 6th, and a hitman sit them. I want you to go to the bottom of that. To get to the bottom of that, excuse me. So, this isn't all I'm going to talk about. First of all, just on top of, on, on the, I guess, surface value of the investigation here, this starting day, what a great way to start off, first of all, because there are many people living in absolute pathetic denial of the events of January 6th, which I have talked about here and there, but never in as much detail as I'm about to, um, since the very first episode of season four, which was predominantly overtaken by the January 6th Capitol riot. Uh, I'm going to make sure this doesn't play a video when I get in here. So, the first place to start for me is the blatant denial of what happened. Because on the day of, nobody was making up atrocious lies to, to cover up the fact that this was simply a mob of pro-Trump voters who are emotionally manipulated by Trump, who they believed honestly was the godsend Washington outsider, which, hint, hint, he wasn't, um, to save them from the tyranny of having to pay slightly more for gas or something. Which is... That's a bit of an insult. I apologize for that, but I I had to. Uh, The point of the matter is, after it happened, after the fact, because a lot of what I talked about that day was the fact of why did this happen? Well, now after that, we've got about six months later, there are many who are living in pure denial of what happened. And the ones living in denial are the voters. The ones perpetrating the denial 
are are not doing it, I don't think, because they honestly believe it. They're doing it because they are politically motivated to do so. Such as this next piece, where Elise Stefanik blamed Nancy Pelosi for the, Janu- for the January 6th Capitol riot. Um... I'll just read this piece here. Speaking at a news conference Tuesday, just as the House kicked off its January 6th hearings with the, ser- with the searing testimony from Capitol Police officers, House Republican Conference Chair Elise Stefanik attempted to shift blame. Nancy Pelosi bears responsibility as Speaker of the House for the tragedy that occurred on January 6th, Stefanik said. The New York lawmaker also deemed Pelosi a top Democrat in the House, an authoritarian who has broke the people's house, and claimed Pelosi has refused to see a GOP representatives Jim Jordan and Jim Banks on the House Select Committee because she doesn't want a fair or bipartisan inf- inv- investigation. She wants a political one. Um, okay, that's about where I'm going to stop. So, what's interesting about this take from not just Elise Stefanik, but from all of these angry Republicans is that, one, I and I wrote an article about this that I just published as of the day I'm recording this, which is Friday, so it'll be the day before the episode comes out. What I find very striking about this is that they painted out that, well, we didn't get what we wanted. We, the people we wanted to be on your committee did not get on, so therefore it is non, it is bi, or it's um, highly partisan or whatever, and it's political and all that stuff. Now, do I believe that Nancy Pelosi and many Democrats want the final result of this commission to be Donald Trump was responsible. Republicans were responsible. Ultimately, they just need enough to say Republicans are evil. And if you vote for them, this will happen again, which let's be honest, they're going to do that either way, because this is like political goldmine for or for Democrats right now. Um, and so, yeah, of course, they're going to do that, which is disgusting. And uh, oh, man, I scraped my chair, which is um, disgusting but they're going to do it because that's what Democrats and Republicans do. It's political power that they're always and always have chased. And they chase that political power under this stupid delusion that they are better than everyone who ever disagreed with them and always will be. Um, so it's the power they're after. And this is going to be a goldmine for Democrats running for office and Democrats running for, for re-election and so on and so on. Now, um, the assertion that this is Pelosi's fault comes from the fact that there were admittedly times where people said, hey, something fishy's going on. Look at this online talk and things of that nature that the House and the, that the Capitol was warned about that didn't really take very seriously. And I think that played a part into it, but I couldn't be entirely sure because what little information there is about it on that uh, front of the subject was highly is highly, I guess, overshadowed right now by the politics. Um, But to say it's all Pelosi's fault is, (laughs) ironically, also a political point. And this is what I wrote in the article. I wrote that, and what what my point I'm trying to make here is that Republicans' criticism of this commission and of Adam, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, the two moderate Republicans sitting on the committee, is not because they have legitimate questions that they want to be answered. They don't care. The ones that care are the Cheneys and the Kinzingers, mostly the moderate Republicans who didn't vote to have the election results overturned because they did not want Donald Trump to lose. It 
they, what they're chasing here is the exact same thing that Pelosi and top Democrats are chasing with this investigation as well. And that's ideological supremacy that then in turn allows them to advocate for their own political power. And so because of the fact that they both want the power so much, knowing an election year is coming up next year, they're going to highly misconstrue everything they can as an attack on the truth so that they can say the truth benefits us, we're right, and the other side is at fault for what happened. And it's very pathetic because everything, it, it's that, it's the exact ignorance that liberals and conservatives have facing the Capitol riot that is why it happened. The way they're acting, looking at how at the riot itself and assessing how did this happen, is why it happened. It was a result of political ignorance, of, of rhetorical and emotional manipulation at the hands of an ideological demagogue. But these people are so entrenched in their ideological delusions that they aren't mentally capable of understanding that reality. They're delusional in every sense. And I think that it's going to play a massive part in the way we in the way we interpret this and what happened and how who we are going to find responsible and situations of that nature. What I'm concerned about is at this point, I don't care if they find Trump responsible and they somehow put him in prison, which, by the way, there's another piece about that we're about to mention right after this. What I really care the most about is ensuring this just doesn't happen again. And I think there's going to be some situational things there that was mentioned, I think, I think it was Officer Gannell who said that there are security measures in place at the Capitol that day, today, to this very day, that have been in operation for 20 years. The Capitol security has not been updated in decades. So maybe things like that are what I'm more concerned about. I don't care anymore if Trump is found for something, if they're somehow able to tie him in. I know everyone else wants to tie him in, but I don't care anymore. What I care about is ensuring that this cannot happen ever again, obviously. And I think that's what the... I, I feel that the committee is going to do that. Sure, there's going to be lots of politics in it, no doubt. Um, if anything, I actually trust the two moderate Republicans on that committee a little more than I trust any of the Democrats on that committee. Uh, except maybe... Um, oh, I forget her name. I, <laughs> I don't actually know her name, but I know she sits on the far... If you're facing them, she sits on the far left seat over here. Uh, but the point is, these, in their, I suppose, in their assertion, in their, in their assessment of the Capitol riot, what the left and the right are going to be completely ignorant to the to is the fact that it is their very ignorance, the ignorance that fuels their their perception of the Capitol riot right now that caused the Capitol riot to happen to begin with. And until they either put on a pair of big boy pants and grow up, um, it's very much likely to happen again, I think, uh, if not happen in a worse fashion. Related to that issue, the DOJ has cleared the way, or is clearing the way, I should say, to have Trump officials testify what, about what happened on January 6th. Um, this actually reminds me, there's a piece of news, I'll leave it for the end. I'll leave... Actually, no, you know what, I'm going to, real quick while I'm thinking about this, I'm going to talk about this, something else after this that's also mildly related to this. Okay, 
The Justice Department has notified former government officials that it has consulted with the White House Counsel's Office and that it would not be appropriate to assert executive privilege with respect to communications with former President Trump and his advisors and staff on matters related to the committee's proposed interviews, according to a person who has read the letter from the department official Bradley Weinsheimer. Shamer? I think it's Shamer. Shimer. The decision could clear a path for former Justice Department officials to testify about an attempt to oust then-acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen and replace him with someone sympathetic to the former president's baseless arguments about election fraud in the days before the January 6th Capitol riot. But the decision could also pretend court challenges by Trump and others with whom he talked to on January 6th, the person said. Representative Carolyn Maloney, chairwoman of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, celebrated the decision. The House Select Committee investigating the deadly Capitol attack held its first hearing Tuesday. Um, Representative Benny Thompson, the chairman of the committee, told reporters the panel will will reconvene for another hearing in August. Um, and then when asked whether the and the subpoenas would be issued for, for the former president or others who served at the White House on the 6th, Thompson said only, we will follow the facts. So... This clears the way, this spells massive trouble for Trump, I think. And we've already, and the next piece I'm about to talk about actually also spells massive trouble for Trump uh, in terms of his connection to the January 6th Capitol riot, because if anything gets out that is just like, because first of all, if you've, this kind of, this is unrelated or not unrelated, but so one thing I talk about a lot relating to Trump just in general, and then also in my book, MAGA, The Trump Experiment, is that basically his whole Washington outsider facade was a load of hogwash. I mean, he the one thing he did that I think he did better than a lot of presidents have done before him was that he was, he was really good with the economy, I think. He was good at creating an economy where you can get a job and you can... And, and work and, and the economy can can see a bolstering in activity. But that's about the extent. Well, that and I, I did like some of his foreign policy, not all of it, because a lot of his foreign policy relied on basically just flipping everyone off and then kicking them in the shin and running away. But some of it I was a fan of. Um, and, I, and I liked that he was attempting to reach out to these foreign leaders that the U.S. had never reached out to before in hopes of hopefully creating peace talks. But often he, his personality would get in the way of an idea that I thought was a really good one, which is often a problem with him. Um, but overall, something that he constantly is trying to hide from both his voter, more so his voters. Actually, excuse me, I'm going to mess with my microphone real quick. So it's kind of more towards me now that I'm leaning back and not sitting straight up. Something that he tries to hide more so from his voters than he does America on on Moss is the fact that basically everything he's ever said about being a Washington outsider nonsense is hogwash. I mean, every corrupt thing that these people criticize about the the deep state, Trump did too. He's done it as a businessman. He did it while in office. Like no person 20, if we were to bring Trump and a regular corrupt politician back 20 years ago and say, which one of these is a Washington outsider? No one would be able to tell the difference because Trump wasn't different than anyone in Washington. I mean, you want to talk about someone who surrounds themselves 
himself in in corruption all the time trumps your guy. He like he has a horrible judgment and character, and like everyone he's ever hired to work for him, and everyone that worked for him in in his uh, administration was an awful human being who did terrible things with their position. And the only reason I think Trump was never pulled into any of them is because I do genuinely think that a lot of the time Trump was not aware of half the corruption going on around him. But there has been corruption that he has been very close to that I'm very aware that he was part of. Um, the, the fact of the matter is what this whole clearing says for Trump is... This whole legacy of the American outsider, conservative hero, new age, modern Abraham Lincoln and savior of America uh, aesthetic he's trying to pass on um, is at stake here. It could be completely shattered by any um, testimonies made, by any information released. If anything comes out that proves in any sense that Trump was just as corrupt as the people he criticized. Anything, like, we're not talking like, oh, that's a little fishy. We're talking, that is blatant corruption t- levels of, of, of expose. Then I would say he's, he's looking down the barrel of the shotgun that will kill his career. In politics, that is. I'd say in general, but specifically in politics. And... If, if we're going to ask about my opinion about this, first, like January 6th and his treatment of it and the way he just after that, I completely lost anyway. As much as I like some of his foreign policy ideas, as much as I like the way he handled the economy, I don't care. I don't care if God himself came to Earth and said Trump is the chosen one. After January 6th, I do, I will, I, no, no, I won't. I will gladly burn in hell if it means not giving power to a man that's self-centered and that powered by the ego of his supporters. Um, the ego of himself given him by his supporters, that is. Um, I simply won't. And if he runs in 2024, which will be the first presidential election I'll get to vote in in my life, I will not vote for him. I do not care. Um, nothing he could do will ever will ever change the fact that, one, he lied and manipulated his voters just as, just as, uh, what's the word? Um, just as swamp-y? Like, he used every single political trick of emotional manipulation and he believes in all the same ignorant ideological supremacy belief systems as everyone he ever has or ever will criticized. He's no better than anyone he has ever criticized, ever. And that says to me... And then after January 6th specifically... He could have done something to affect that because it was his fault it happened to begin with. And all he could muster was some crappy video that says, we love you, go home, hours after, when it was already over, when people were already being cleared out. He's a coward and an idiot, in my opinion. And I I think that if any, if... If this comes to find something, and I don't mean let's create something that hurts him, because that's what a lot of people and a lot of critics of Trump want to do. I mean, if we find something that is clear, that says he did something wrong, then he must be, on on one hand, he just must be prosecuted because that's, 
that is the way the law works. But on the other hand, am I sad that he's prosecuted for if he's if he's prosecuted, I should say, for something for some kind of wrongdoing? No, I'm not sad. In fact, I'm a little happy because I don't want that man to come to power ever again, because I feel like if he were to be reelected in any sense, I think he would probably try and set some things up so that he never has to face that kind of uh, scrutiny again. Um, I know if I were him, I would. Um, because after writing the, the MAGA book, I was really able to kind of, after reading so much of Trump, some of which I was living through, but a lot of which I didn't really pay attention to until about 2018, after really digging into the way he talks and the way he talks about himself and others and the way he acts within government, I feel like I have just a, enough of an understanding to know what I would do if I was him. And so I think that this path being cleared is going to spell a lot of trouble out for him. On the note of, of those types of revelations being revealed about Trump doing bad things, which before I get into that real quick, I'm going to, I'm going to take a, a quick moment to pause and I'm going to say, make sure to follow my Instagram. That's at Huey Noah. That's at H-E-G-H-U-I-N-O-A-H. That's at Huey Noah. And you can support the show through merch and my books on the shop section of my website. Um, so if that's something you're interested in doing, give it a, give it a try. Um, on the note of Trump doing bad things, um, new a new revelation from notes about a conversation Trump had, was it on January 6th or was it before? I think it was before. Yeah, it's December 27th phone call. New notes from Trump's, oh, what's his name? Tr uh, yeah, the deputy... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, excuse me. I, I'm new notes on a, on a December twenty seventh phone call Trump had with Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen say something very telling about Trump that reaffirms what I've been what I've been uh, what's the word what I've been saying about Trump in the book and and in real life. The exchange unfolded during a December 27th phone call in which Trump pressed the acting attorney general at the time, Jeffrey Rosen, and his deputy, Richard Donahue, on voter fraud claims that the department has disproved. Donahue warned that the department had no power to change the outcome of the election. Trump replied that he did not expect that, according to notes Donahue took memorial memorializing the conversation. The notes in quotes here say, just say the election was corrupt corrupt, plus leave the rest to me and the congressional allies, Donahue wrote in summarizing Trump's response. Trump did not name lawmakers, but as, but at other points during the call, he mentioned Representative Jim Jordan, Scott Perry, and Ron Johnson. The notes connect Trump's allies in Congress with his campaign to pressure justice, excuse me, Justice Department officials to help undermine or even nullify the election results. Um... Many of these people did go on to challenge the election results in Congress, but that's the, besides the point. That note, which granted is a note written by another person, but it's written by the person who's taking notes of the conversation he's having with the guy that says, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and congressional allies is very telling of what I've been saying about Trump from the beginning of what I just said about Trump. He was no different than the people he criticized. And he, I feel like, chases that power and ideological supremacy with a, with a hint of narcissism. Because here's the thing. There's something about Trump that, that makes him different than most Republicans to me. 
Where most Republicans, yes, I talk about ideological superiority, the delusion of that superiority, and the amount of cognitive dissonance that goes into it. That's always talking about a, a collective thing. And it varies person to person, but one thing that always is true about Republicans and Democrats is the ideological delusion and uh, the, the delusion of ideological supremacy, and then how they advocate for government to adopt and impose their preferred ideology because through the delusion they have internalized, they think if the government doesn't adopt and impose their ideology, their ideology is somehow under threat, which is a lie, obviously. And again, it's delusional. There's just not much reason behind it except conspiracy theory nonsense. But what makes Trump different, what always made Trump different, what I learned as I wrote the book, what I learned as I watched Trump towards the end of the presidency, what always made Trump different is that there, I, I'm an amateur, I'm very, my psychoanalysis of Trump is very amateurish in the book. But what I notice is that there's an inherent sense of narcissism in what he does. And if you just know enough about psychology to kind of spot some of the, excuse me, my chair's like leaning over, to spot some of those telltale signs of narcissism, I think like you'll, I think you'll notice them in Trump. Because Trump doesn't just, he doesn't just advocate for the ideological superiority of conservatives or of Republicans. He advocates for himself to be the face of that superiority. He advocates for himself to be conservatism, to be Republicanism in the 21st century, which is Interesting, because not everyone, in fact, I'd say almost no one elected to office who's a Republican or conservative and vice versa on the Democratic liberal side. None of those people worry so much about being the face or being the leader of that movement. Trump, more so, really wants his name to be conservatism. And so often what he would do doesn't just argue that he's that he will act in a corrupt manner for his ideology, as many politicians have and do, um, uh, do, um, but that he also does it in a sense of he, he enjoys the fame itself. What I often wrote in the book about Trump, the MAGA, the Trump experiment, was that he was chasing this glory legacy of being the next Abraham Lincoln. And because someone, some people started calling him that on the internet, and there was a there was a movie made by Dinesh D'Souza, I think, about Trump, and like it tied Trump to Lincoln in some ways. And I think as that caught on, Trump's head inflated massively, and a sense of narcissism shows throughout the rest of his presidency, in which he's constantly trying to reaffirm that he is the next Abraham Lincoln. So for him, there is a massive sense of narcissism in the way he acted, uh, as well as promoting the ideological delusion of conservative ideology being the superior ideology by and large, and then must be adopted and imposed by the federal government. And so what this tells me, this just further to me reaffirms that sense of narcissism and that just desire for the political power that would reaffirm and impose his ideological preferences. And I think that that's important to note whether you're liberal or conservative um, and to understand, not just know that he did it, but to understand the possible implications of the act and to know that, that there's, there's something wrong with that, if that makes sense, even if uh, even because even if we 
take January 6th away from it because this did happen. This phone call happened before January 6th because January 6th, like I said, is for me the deal breaker. But even if you think that he's all right, which I did, and I do think he was on the right track and he had right ideas often, you have to admit that that those words, let just let me take care of it and just say it was corrupt is. And, and this isn't the first time he would often go to the DOJ and just say, hey, just do what I want. I, I, I often noted in the book as well, I know I'm talking a lot about this book, but a lot of these things, it helped me ties together some of the ideas I wrote about. Um, I apologize, by the way. Um, if you want to read it. Uh, but <laughs> um, he's he would go to the farthest lengths I've ever seen a president go for what I thought was ideological supremacy, but what it seems more is personal supremacy for him. It's a little bit more personal supremacy. And I think that's just important to notice uh, if you're going to do a fair assessment of Trump's character. So this next piece of news feels like deja vu, feels like last last May again. Um, the CDC has changed its mask mandate once more, and we're going to have to possibly even vaccinate people are going to have to wear masks again. New mask mandates and rules were cascaded Tuesday and Wednesday following the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidance that vaccinated people in high-transmission areas should still wear masks indoors, bringing people back pandemic health restrictions for many Americans. This is from Fox, by the way. I have stuck with CDC guidance throughout this pandemic, and today is no different. Kansas City... uh, Kansas City Mayor? Yeah. Kansas City... uh, Oh, Kansas City, Montana. Mayor Quentin Lucas tweeted Tuesday night, I will return Kansas City to a mask mandate indoors based upon national and regional health guidance in discussion with other Kansas leaders. He added, we cannot ignore the rapid spread of COVID-19 Delta variant in Missouri. Excuse me, not uh, Montana. Did I say Montana? Missouri. I, I don't remember what I said anymore. Outpacing much of the country. We will do all we can to ensure the corner of the state is safe. Um, blah, 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 blah. This is about all the state guidance things. I guess that's really all I have to read from this article. In that case, I'm just going to start talking about it. So, new mask mandate, whatever. What I'm more concerned about is um, the way it's being handled on the political front. Because... One of the issues that has become a highly political thing, which really bothers me, is the pandemic and masks and vaccines. All of these things have a massive political twinge to them that makes me very mad because none of them should be a political thing. But they are because, like I've always said, Democrats and Republicans will use absolutely anything to reaffirm that their ideology is the best ideology ever known to man and everyone must adopt it. So... Where I would start with this is the mask mandates, because the House reinstated one, and Madison Cawthorn, among many other Republicans in Congress, are throwing a tantrum over it. Um, many of these Republicans are saying... The, the, the company line with Republicans and this mask thing and the pandemic is that Democrats are tyrants and should, like Dan Crenshaw said, no mask mandates or lockdowns should be complied with by by citizens. Um, Republicans in the House are not wearing their masks uh, with this new thing where they can get arrested. And they're pulling the tyranny card. And something I noticed that Republicans and Democrats do alike, what liberals and conservatives alike do, is they play a game of tyrants and oppressors. Everything... 
is a t- everything is a is a is a is a is an admission of tyranny, which is ironic because I I I really don't think it is. And what I find the most interesting about all of this is that ultimately these tantrums being thrown over the mask mandate. Well, first of all, I guess we should talk about the mask mandate itself. Is the mask mandate warranted? I maybe eh? because. Ultimately, there's like one type of mask that's actually effective, but we're promoting types of masks that basically do nothing, like cloth masks. Um, And the thing is, what these Republicans want voters to believe is that Nancy Pelosi and Democrats, by and large, are all conspiring in a dark room, laughing maniacally and petting their white cats, going, how can we restrict people's freedom today? And that's always that's always the company line with with Republicans right now to just say that Democrats are are tyrants and that they're King George reincarnated and all these stupid things, um, because I think that's what they honestly believe. The, the delusion of ideological supremacy, my flip-flops are all over the place down there, the delusion of ideological supremacy is so strong with Republicans right now that I would say if you told them you're not allowed to drop a pin in the House floor, they would tell you, oh my gosh, you're restricting my freedom, 1776, ah! Like, they're, they're so entrenched in the idea that they have to be in control for freedom to flourish that they aren't willing to see anything as anything but a form of tyranny so long as it restricts them to do whatever they feel like it and have no repercussions. Um, and what they don't notice is that I feel like this move, I highly doubt, just because I'm not a crazy person, that anyone, the CDC or the Democrats, are hiding in a dark room going, <laughs> how can we take away everyone's rights? I think, and I'm just saying this because I'm a crazy conspiracy theorist, I think that they probably are worried about people getting this more transmissible, slightly worse infection-affected version of the COVID-19 virus, and they don't want people to get it and spread it, prolonging the pandemic. I think they're probably just as scared and confused as the rest of us are, and they're just doing what they think is right, even if it is not the right move. I don't know. I'm just, that's just a thought. And people go, well, what, they, they, they're hypocrites about the mask thing. Maybe they know that the masks aren't the most effective thing in the world. Ultimately, one thing that I've heard very common among doctors and politicians alike is that ultimately the masks really, they're fine and they're a good part of, of, of uh, um, fighting the Delta variant. But ultimately, vaccination is going to be the best key. Um, key to this thing because what many are saying is that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated and that it's unvaccinated people that are going to spread it and get hit worse by this delta variant um, overall and i think that's a good point to make but i think the republican reaction to these new mask um, mandates pouring in and these new recommendations from the cdc this company line that everything is tyranny because you don't get to do whatever you want and be this like macho man uh uh, loser that who peaked in high school I th- and, and saying that you're not allowed to do whatever you want and you have to do something real quick is a form of tyranny is just a political line so that in 2022 they can say ah, tyrant tyrant I like someone other than them because I don't like them because they're crybabies um, who didn't get hit enough as children I think just ultimately 
the, these new mandates and these new guidances, I'm going to take a wild shot in the dark and be a crazy conspiracy theorist. And I'm going to say that they probably just want to try and do something they think can help even just a little bit because they're scared and confused just like the rest of us. And something I posted on my Instagram, I'm going to pull it up because I want to remember exactly what it said. Um, something that I posted on my Instagram really, I think, uh, poignantly says what I'm trying to point out here. It's easier to believe in fairy tales of tyrants and oppressors than it is to believe that everyone else is just as scared as you are and we're all trying to do the right thing. And I would add to that, even if it's not even if it's not always the best solution. In the latter situation, you're required to think situationally and fairly, something none of us want to do. And I think that's the best way to point out what I'm trying to say here. Essentially that people aren't, nobody, there is no one sitting in a dark room plotting to take away your rights and crush your freedom. I don't believe that for a second because I've closely followed and, 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 looked into these people for long and hard enough to know that if they are doing it, then they're, they're very, very good at hiding it. And this, I just don't see any evidence that anyone is sitting in a dark room plotting the destruction of American freedom. But the reason people paint it out that way on both sides of the aisle is because it's politically convenient and takes less intellectual effort to hate a faceless, nameless group of tyrants or oppressors than it is to look at individual people and have to think with a rational sense of situationalism and intellect. It's easier to hate faceless tyrants than it is to hate individual people who are just scared and confused. Because that takes more effort, I suppose. I guess. Um, so that's all I can say about that. Our final piece of news is a good piece of news. The bipartisan infrastructure deal is sailing for, through its first Senate vote after negotiators for the Republican side uh, struck a deal. So the Senate's bipartisan, bipartisan infrastructure deal finally moved forward on Wednesday night after weeks of grueling negotiations, handing a group of centrists and President Joe Biden a major win. Though the legislation is still unfinished and failed just a week ago, more than a dozen Republicans took the plunge and voted to break an initial filibuster on the bill. Among them was Senate Minority Mitchell, excuse me, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who has previously said 100% of his focus was standing up to Biden's agenda. But even as the Senate agreed to begin considering the bipartisan framework, final passage remains uncertain. Republicans will demand amendment votes and input on the bill, and it will once again face a 60-vote hurdle and close to close debate. The Senate may even work through the weekend to make the progress on the proposal and its $550 billion in new spending as August recess approaches. Um... Quote, I want to commend the group of senators who worked with President Biden, said Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer after the vote. My goal remains to pass both the bipartisan infrastructure bill and a budget resolution that would work, period. Both. It might take some long nights. It might eat into our weekends, but we are going to get the job done and we are on track, end quote. Ahead of the vote, Schumer pleaded for full party support to advance the bill, which many progressive have reservations about, at a launch for all 50 Democrats, according to Senate Majority Whip. Dick Durbin. After 50, after, excuse me, afterward, Schumer profi professed confidence that the Senate was finally ready to move forward. 
Um, this is just good news. And it's another, another show that often when you work towards the common goals of, of the people instead of the ideological goals of your party, you often end up doing better things faster. And I think that's something that people often don't recognize because of the delusion of ideological supremacy being so powerful among our elected leaders and among our voters that we don't often recognize that often the best things that happen for all of us are things that are done and, and the, the time in which they happen come when we just sit down and have a candid conversation on the solutions we can create together to solve our nation's issues, issues such as crumbling infrastructure. Um, and I wanted to, that's why I changed what I was going to end the, the show on, because I wanted to, to end on a good note after being gone for a little while to just make the point that, that it takes time and it takes effort. But at the end of the day, if we are, if we are open and, and ready to be rational, cognitive, but empathetic people towards one another, both in power and as, as citizens, I think we'll often find we have an easier time coming up with comprehensive solutions that benefit everyone that is faced by the problems that the nation faces. And it's better to think of America like that than it is to think of it as just another country that will one day be overrun by ideological tyrants who don't understand freedom when that freedom doesn't benefit them. And that's the note I'll end the podcast on. Thanks so much for listening in this week. It was a pleasure having you back after that roughly month-long break, which I may do every year. I may shorten the summer break from three months to one. Um, one last time, I'll remind you to follow my Instagram. That's at Huey Noah. That's at H-U-G-H-U-I-N-O-A-H. That's at Huey Noah. And uh, make sure to support the show through my merch and my books in the shop section of my website. I'd also like to throw in one last shout out for a group I've recently been reaching out to called The Conversationalist. The Conversationalist is a group of unifying uh, Gen Zers um, who aim to break our echo chambers, whether they be left, right, or center echo chambers, um, through candid, through these types of candid conversations that I rant about so long and so often on the show. And I think it's a great place for someone in Gen Z if you want to have your voice heard, if you want to break your echo chamber, and if you want to, as they often say at The Conversationalist, unify the world. So make sure to check them out on Instagram, make sure to join their app in Geneva, and look out for season one of their show, POVs. I think it's coming out August or September, I can't remember anymore. But make sure to check them out, they're very awesome. Thanks so much, so much for listening in. And I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.